All right, how's everybody doing today? Hotep, hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. I'm a host, researcher, lecture writer, and historian. It is Sunday, May 22nd, 2022, and we are live. I want to uh, come on for a few minutes and talk some about a uh, New York Times series that I saw uh, today dealing with uh, Haiti and the Haitian Revolution and also uh, do a brief overview of a 10-week online uh, course that I teach on Sundays from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. And um, we'll teach another session of that class uh, today, right after we finish this broadcast here. Normally I do it on Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the Haitian Revolution is one of the things that uh, I talk about in the class. The Haitian Revolution, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, those are all directly connected. The U.S. Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, we deal with all that. But the Haitian Revolution and the Louisiana Purchase, where the U.S. gets 828,000 square miles of land from France for $15 million because France is trying to raise money because they're going almost bankrupt fighting against the Haitians and the Haitian Revolution. All this is connected. So I want to look at uh, first, I'm going to show you some of the slides in the in the online class that I teach. But I want to look briefly here at one of the huge articles that the New York Times has that came out uh, May 20th, 2022. Okay? Demanding reparations and ending up in exile. Demanding reparations and ending up in exile. This deals with John Batron Aristide. Uh, who was president of, of Haiti in, in 2003. But this also ties to the fact that uh, force, uh, uh, France forced Haiti with the threat of another war to pay reparations to France, okay? They, uh, France demanded 150 million uh, francs, which in, in Haiti ended up paying um, $560 million in today's dollars, to France in reparations for uh, the Haitian Revolution. But if we look at this quickly here, this is some fantastic reporting uh, done uh, by the New York Times, Constant Mayotte, Catherine Porter, Salim, Gebrekadon, and Matt Apuzo. But John Bertrand Aristide, who in 2003 was the uh, president of Haiti, and he was the first Democrat, democratically elected president of Haiti, um, he said this was during a, he was uh, on stage. This was during an event that was taking place. And he, he said, uh, Haiti deserves reparations for France. Basically, he said Repar reparation boomed John Bertrand Aristide, Haiti's firebrand president to the cheers of the, of the farmers and workers and students in the crowd. Okay. Reparation, Haiti's five-brand president, uh, to the cheers of the farmers, workers, and students in the crowd. The French ambassador sitting on stage hid his alarm behind an awkward smile. He knew 
John Bertrand Aristide well enough. He knew John Bertrand Aristide well enough to expect barbs at Haiti's former French colonizers and slave masters. But on April 7th, 2003, the president suddenly started calling for reparations. President John Bertrand Aristide suddenly started calling for reparations. A bombshell that became a hallmark of his presidency and diplomats now concede part of his undoing. Diplomats now concede that was part of his downfall and undoing and why he was taken out of power uh, by France and the U.S. government. Now, the French ambassador said we, we, had, we had to try to defuse it. We had to try to defuse it. Uh, Yves Godal said of uh, John Bertrand Aristide's call for reparations, calling it an explosive, calling it an explosive. Okay, here's a um, drawing of uh, John Bertrand Aristide and uh, uh, Yves Godal. So with his remarks, President John Bertrand Aristide tried to excavate a history that remains all but buried in France. Long after the Haitians threw off the, their shackles in the Haitian Revolution in 1791 to 1803, Haitians declared their independence January 1st, 1804. Long after the Haitians threw off their shackles, uh, beat Napoleon's forces, Napoleon Bonaparte, beat Napoleon's forces and won their independence two, year, two centuries ago, France came back with warships and an unheard of demand. France came back with warships and an unheard of demand that Haitians pay astounding amounts of money to their former slave masters or face war again. France forced Haiti to pay France reparations for the Haitian Revolution and the damage that Haiti did to France. Well, you were the ones enslaving the Haitians. You were the ones enslaving these Africans. Here's a picture of former President John Bertrand Aristide. So Haiti became the first and only nation to pay reparations to its former masters and their descendants for generations and their descendants for generations. According to, uh, let me back up here. Okay. According to a New York Times analysis of thousands of paid archival documents, it shipped the equivalent, Haiti shipped the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars to France. This is one of the main reasons why Haiti is so poor today. And it's been poor for decades, of course. It shipped the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars to France, setting off a cycle of perpetual debt that sapped Haiti's ability to build a nation for more than 100 years. Setting off a cycle of perpetual debt that sapped Haiti's ability to build a nation for more than 100 years.
Yet to this day, the history is not taught in French schools. And many of the country's most prominent aristocratic families are unaware that their ancestors kept collecting payments from Haiti's poorest people, that their ancestors kept collecting payments from Haiti's poorest people long after the end of slavery. Now, President John Bertrand Aristide's, uh, Aristide, Haiti's first democratically elected president after decades of dictatorship, wanted France to do far more than acknowledge its past. He wanted restitution. President John Bertrand Aristide said, what beautiful schools, universities, and hospitals we will be able to build for our children, he told the crowd. How much food will we will how much food we will have in abundance? Now the consequences were immediate and lasting. In interviews that the New York Times did, a dozen French and Haitian political figures recounted how worried France worked quickly and doggedly to stifle President John Bertrand's Aristide's call for reparations before siding with his opponents and collaborating with the United States to remove him from power, okay? Before siding with his opponents and collaborating with the United States to remove him from power. He also has six takeaways, uh, the, the reparations Haitians paid to former slaveholders. We'll look at that briefly in just a minute. And I'm gonna give you overview of our class because we deal with Haiti and the Louisiana Purchase, the Haitian Revolution and the Louisiana Purchase in uh, the 10 week online course that I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968, because we did that we open with that. That's, that's how we start the class because all this history is connected, okay? I'm gonna post a link here for the course. You can register for it because we're gonna, I'm gonna teach another session of the course as soon as uh, we finish this broadcast. Normally we do it on Sundays, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but I'm running behind today. So you'll be able to join us in class today. And we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. It's a 10 week online uh, class that I teach at our online school. Okay, now, France and the United States have long said that President John Bertrand's Aristide's call for restitution had nothing to do with his ouster, that he had taken an autocratic turn, lost control of the country, and was spirited into exile to prevent Haiti, uh, already heaving with turmoil from careening into chaos. But France's ambassador to Haiti at the time uh, Thierry Burkhardt conceded in an interview that France and the United States had effectively orchestrated a coup against President John Bertrand Aristide. Okay, France's ambassador to Haiti at the time, Thierry Burkhardt conceded in an interview that France and the United States had effectively orchestrated a coup against 
President John Bertrand, Bertrand Aristide, and that his abrupt removal was, quote, probably a bit about his call for reparations from France, too. Probably a bit about his call for reparations from France, too. So Terry Bookard, uh, ambassador to uh, 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 France, ambassador to Haiti at the time, Terry Bookard said it made our job easier to dismiss the reparations claims without uh, Mr. Aristide in office. It made our job easier to to dismiss the reparations claims without John Bertrand Aristide in office. So the showdown underscores how two centuries after France forced uh, Haitians to pay their former slave masters, okay, two centuries after France forced Haitians to pay their former slave masters for the liberty they had already won in battle, the effects continued to ripple through the politics of both countries by calling for uh, restitution. Now, it's also important to understand, and we deal with this in the class also, it's important to understand, right? Haiti, well, or on the island of Hispaniola, that was originally conquered in 1492 by Christopher Columbus. So you have the Spanish who had control of the island of Hispaniola first. Haiti is on the western third of the island. Then in 1697, France takes over uh, the western third of the island from Spain, okay? Uh, so you, you so that Haiti, they were victimized by both the Spanish and the French. But it starts with Columbus and the, the Spanish crown. By calling for restitution, Haiti, a, a nation born from what historians call the world's first most successful uh, slave rebellion, struck at France's national identity at a beacon as a beacon of human rights and threatened to inspire others with historical grievances, with historical grievances against France to follow its lead from the Caribbean uh, to Africa, okay? They threatened to inspire others with historical grievances against France to follow its lead from the Caribbean to Africa. Now, this is a uh, illustration depicting uh, uh, the Haitians fighting against the French in 1791, the Haitian Revolution. Now, uh, uh, Godal said, uh, we were very, we were very disdainful of Haiti. We were very disdainful of Haiti. What I think we will never forgive Haiti for deep down is that it is the country that beat us. Okay, it's the country that defeated the French. He's saying what I think we will never forgive Haiti for deep down is that it is the country that beat us. Well, that's because you were enslaving them. And and you were exploiting their labor and treating them in, inhumanely and they fought back. It's not like they went to your country and, and did that to you. No, you, you, you took over from the Spanish, okay, and you brought in kept bringing in African slaves and you're treating them inhumanely and exploiting their labor and creating untold wealth for France and they fought back. 
I mean, the U.S. was born out of revolution, the American Revolution, 1775 to 1783 against King George III and, 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 and Great Britain. Even after John Bertrand Aristide's removal in 2004, the calls for restitution have continued to reverberate, leading to a stunning concession more than a decade later by Francois Holland, France's president, who referred to the money Haiti was forced to hand over as, quote, the ransom of independence, the ransom of independence. Since then, scholars have increasingly explored the history of Haiti's payments. Just this past December, December 2021, at a conference on the grounds of the French finance ministry, one of the most prominent French historians on relations between the two countries, John uh, Francois Brer called the payments a form of quote unquote meta slavery, a form of meta slavery that prevented Haiti from breaking free of France long after independence. All He said all French people are affected by uh, the nation's past in Haiti. Okay, said uh, John Mark Ayrault, uh, a former French prime minister, yet he said French students, French students don't learn about it and few officials discuss it. He said all French people are affected by the nation's past in Haiti. He said French students don't learn about it and few officials discuss it. He said it's never taught, is never explained. And this is largely why France has the wealth that it has today. Okay, so read the rest of this here. Okay, so long, and they, they have three like huge articles from the New York Times on this. Um, this uh, demanding reparations and ending up in exile. Okay, the New York Times, May 20th, 2022. This is dealing with the history of Haiti. Uh, and this is something that we deal with in the class. When I was started reading this this morning, I said, wow, I'm teaching this class today also. So I said, we're going to talk about this um, in the class and we'll probably talk about it this week on the African History Network show as well. So uh, another article that they have from the New York Times. This one here came out uh, May 20th also. Now, we know May 18th was right. Haitian uh, Flag Day, right? Because May 18th, 1803. Uh, commemorates the May 18th commemorates May 18th, 1803, where during the uh, uh, Haitian Revolution, they um, uh, adopted the Haitian flag. OK, so that's what May 18th, 1803. That's what that's why uh, he, uh, Haitian Flag Day is May 18th. OK, there's a good article uh, on this is a good short article from um, Caribbean National Weekly, Caribbean National Weekly. So if you saw like some Facebook posts from some of you, you know, or social media posts from some of your friends that have a Haitian background, okay, on uh, on May 18th, and they were talking about Haitian uh, Flag Day, okay, that's what that deals with. So uh, Caribbean National Weekly, now this article is from 2020, but May 18th. And uh, it talks about uh, Happy Haitian Flag Day, okay? And 
the origins of the holiday. So Toussaint L'Overture was captured by the, by the French in 1803. After Jean Jacques Dessalines and other leaders, let's see if we can increase the size of this. After Jean Jacques uh, Dessalines and other leaders decided to continue the fight and march on, uh, march on what is now Port-au-Prince in Haiti, they wanted to carry a flag that would represent their troops. On May 18, 1803, they pieced together a design uh, for the official flag. Since then, May 18th has been known as Haitian Flag Day. May 18th is known as Haitian Flag Day. The design of the new flag began with the French flag uh, made of blue, white, and red bands. The white band was removed to indicate that the French no longer controlled uh, the colony, okay, of Haiti. Um, a woman named Catherine Flon, F-L-O-N, sold the new flag together, sold the new flag together using vertical bands of blue and red cloth. Blue represented uh, blacks and mixed race people and red symbolized their blood, okay? Over the years, the nation's flag has been modified several times, but Flag Day itself has remained the same as the day the nation's flag was first sewn together. May 18th is a major national holiday in uh, Haiti. Okay, so check that out. And this is from CaribbeanNationalWeekly.com. All right, so if we just uh, very quickly look at this, and I'm going to... Uh, give you a brief overview of the 10-week online class that I teach from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968, because this is some of what we deal with in the class, because we deal with the Haitian Revolution and the Louisiana Purchase and show how they are connected. Because, because of the Louisiana Purchase and the U.S. doubling its territory, uh, this increased the need for African slave labor here in the U.S., this increased the need for African slave labor here in the U.S. But if we just look at this quickly here, six takeaways about Haiti's reparations to France. This is from May 20th, 2022 from the New York Times. This is part of that series that they did. I just want to look at um, page three right here. Uh, the double debt that started it all. The double debt that started it all. Okay. And this deals with uh, 1825, when a French warship bristling with cannons sailed into the port of the Haitian capital in 1825, an emissary from King Charles X came ashore and delivered an astonishing demand. France wanted reparations from the people it had enslaved, the Haitians. France wanted reparations from the people it had enslaved. Okay, the, the Haitians. Ordinarily, the defeated are the ones who pay reparations, not the victors. Okay, but not in this case here. Just a decade earlier, France had been forced to pay uh, pay reparations to uh, its European uh, neighbors after the failed military campaigns of Napoleon, the very emperor whose forces were also defeated by the Haitians. But Haiti was virtually alone in the world with no powerful allies. It was fearful of being invaded 
and eager to establish trade with other nations, so it agreed to pay. Also, France threatened to go to war with Haiti again if they didn't, if they didn't pay reparations. Now, the demand was for 150 million French francs to be turned over in five annual payments, far more than Haiti could pay. The, uh, so France pushed France pushed Haiti to take a loan from a group of French banks to start paying. That Sisyphean uh, weight came to be known as the double debt, the double debt. Haiti had to pay France and then Haiti had to pay back the loan to uh, a group of French banks. Now, the true cost uh, to Haiti then and today, the New York Times tracked each payment Haiti made over the course of 64 years. In all, the payments added up to about $560 million in today's dollars. But the loss to Haiti, but the loss to Haiti cannot just be measured by adding up how much was paid to France and to outside lenders over the years. Okay, the loss to Haiti cannot just be measured by adding up how much was paid to France and to outside lenders over the years. Every Frank ship or uh, ship from France, French ship. Every Frank ship, I'm sorry, back up. They're talking about uh, the uh, their monetary uh, system. They're talking about their uh, their currency, francs. Okay, every Frank shipped across the Atlantic took uh, to an overseas bank vault was a Frank not circulating among Haiti's farmers, laborers, and merchants. Every Frank shipped the French currency across the Atlantic to an overseas bank, a European bank, a French bank, was a franc not circulating among Haiti's farmers, laborers, and merchants, or not being invested in bridges, schools, or factories, the sort of expenditures that help nations become nations that enable them to prosper. Now, after reviewing thousands of pages of archival documents, some centuries old, and consulting with 15 of the world's leading economists, our, this is New York Times talking, our the New York Times correspondents calculated, their correspondence for the New York Times calculated that the payments to France cost Haiti from 21 billion dollars to 115 billion dollars in lost economic growth over time okay after consulting with 15 of the world's leading economists their correspondence new york times correspondence calculated that the payments to france that haiti was forced to make cost haiti from 21 billion dollars to 115 billion dollars in lost economic growth over time that is as much as eight times the size of haiti's entire economy in 2020. neocolonialism through debt 
is how Thomas Piketty, uh, I think I think that's how you uh, P I K E T T Y, one of the economists we spoke with, put it. This drain has totally disrupted the process of state building, he said, neocolonialism through debt. And that was only the beginning. The double debt helped push Haiti into a cycle of debts that hobbled the country for more than 100 years. And that was only the beginning. The double debt helped push Haiti into a cycle of debts that hobbled the country for more than 100 years. Okay, so you can read the rest of this because they talk about uh, the, the French uh, the French banks. And, oh, this is this right here. The French bank that struck gold, right? The French government sapped um, Haiti with its demand for reparations, okay? But in later years, the French approached Haiti with a different tactic, the outstretched, the outstretched hand of business of a business partner. After half a century of crushing payments tied to the double debt, Haitians celebrated the news that at last the country would have its own national bank, okay, would have its own national bank. But the sort of institution, uh, the sort of institution that in Europe had financed railroads and factories, okay, however, the National Bank of Haiti was Haitian in name only. It was a of Credit Industriel et Commercial, a which was a which was a Paris-based uh, bank, commonly known as CIC, and its investors. It was actually a Paris-based bank, commonly known as CIC, and its investors. They controlled Haiti's national bank from Paris and took a commission on nearly every transaction the Haitian government made. Okay. Now, if we go to, hold on, it's just, just one quick thing I want to show you here, looking at this article, page eight. Uh, okay. This right here, U.S. treated Haiti like a cash register because the the, uh, the the Marines invaded in 1915. Okay, here's a, a picture over here: the American military in Haiti in 1915. Okay, the U.S. treated where is that here? Okay, it's it's right below the picture. There we go. The U.S. treated Haiti like a cash register when the American military invaded uh, Haiti in 19 in, in the summer of 1915. The uh, so this is during uh, World, World War One, which is 1914-1918, but um, the U.S. doesn't get involved in World War One until 1970, okay? And this is at the beginning of the Great Migration of African Americans migrating from the South up North and out West, okay? So when the uh, American military invaded Haiti summer of 1915, the official explanation was that Haiti was too poor and too unstable um, too unstable to be left on its own devices. The official explanation was that Haiti was too poor and too unstable to be left to its own devices. Secretary of, U.S. Secretary of State Robert Lansing uh, made little effort to mask his contempt for the African race, quote unquote African race, casting the occupation 
as a civilizing mission intended to end, quote, anarchy, savagery, savagery, and oppression, end quote. But a hint of other motives had come the winter before when a small team of Marines entered Haiti's National Bank and strolled out with $500,000 in gold. The, a hint of other motives had come the winter before when a small team of Marines, U.S. Marines, entered Haiti's National Bank and, and walked out with $500,000 in gold from Haiti's National Bank. Within days, it was in the vault of a Wall Street bank. Now, um, quote, I, uh, you had uh, the general who led the U.S. forces in Haiti said years later, describing himself as a racketeer for capitalism. He said, I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues. Now, National City Bank was the predecessor to of Citigroup Bank. National City Bank was the predecessor of Citigroup Bank and along with other powers on Wall Street, it pushed Washington to seize control of Haiti and its finances, Washington, D.C. It pushed Washington, D.C. to seize control of Haiti and its finances according to decades of diplomatic correspondence, financial reports, and archival records reviewed by the New York Times. For decades to come, the United States was the dominant power in, in Haiti, dissolving parliament at gunpoint, killing thousands and shipping a big portion of Haiti's earnings to bankers in New York, New York City, while the farmers who helped generate the profits often lived near starvation. Some historians cite tangible uh, gains for Haiti during the U.S. occupation, like uh, hospitals, 800 miles of roads, and a more efficient civil service. But they also point, they also point to the American use of forced labor with soldiers, U.S. soldiers tying up workers in ropes, making Haitians build roads for no pay and shooting those who tried to flee and shoot and shooting those who tried to flee for a decade for a decade a quarter of Haiti's total revenue went to paying debts controlled by National City Bank here in the US which became Citigroup Bank and its affiliates according to nearly two dozen um, annual reports prepared by American officials and reviewed by the New York Times.
At times, the um, at times the American officers who controlled Haiti's finances spent more of its money paying their own salaries and expenses than on public health for the entire country of about two million people. Okay, so read the rest of this this piece here because this I printed this up. This is twelve pages. Okay, that would uh, that was on page seven and eight. The U.S. treated Haiti like a cash register. That was on page uh, seven and eight. Okay, this is part of the huge, uh, this huge series that the New York Times just released. Six takeaways about Haiti's reparations to France. How did the modern world's most successful slave revolt give birth to a desperate, desperately poor nation? Here is a summary of what a team of New York Times correspondents found out. All right, so. I was looking at this this morning and I said, wow, because we I deal with this in the online course that I teach uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. So if you watch the African History Network show, you've heard me talk about it. I teach this class on Sundays, uh, normally 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to I'm going to teach the class right after I finish this broadcast here shortly. Because I'm running late today and I have to do my radio show at 9 p.m. tonight, Sunday, 9 p.m. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power. And we start in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution because those two are connected. And we deal with history chronologically to see what leads up to the Civil War taking place. We deal with Reconstruction, 1865, 1877, Jim Crow era, Great Migration, uh, 1915, 1970. Uh, World, World War One, World War Two, Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement. So it's a 10-week online class that I teach. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. So you can register for the class. You can. We have some uh, archived content. You can watch last week's class. You can join us uh, in class um, uh, today. You can join us in today's class also. Okay. And even after the course is over with, you can go back and watch it any time. So a year from now, two years from now, you'll be able to watch the, you can go back and watch the entire class's archive. Uh, I'm going to do a, a quick overview here uh, and deal with some of the information that we deal with in the class. And I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips um, to understand what happened to us after slavery ended, how we got into the predicament that we're uh, that we're in now to understand where we need to go from here because we have to understand how all this is connected Okay, historical events don't happen in a vacuum They they are the culmination of a sequence of historical events that lead up to other events taking place. Okay So the attacks on critical race theory these anti-critical race theory laws we saw we saw how complicated uh, some lessons in schools during African-American History Month. This article right here from Axios.com, new rules are limiting how teachers can teach Black History Month, the attacks on critical race theory, the attacks on the 1619 Project, uh, even some type of backlash dealing with Juneteenth, history, uh, teaching uh, about the history of slavery in schools, um, uh, teaching about white supremacy, racism, all this is connected to the Civil War and Reconstruction. And this is a whole backlash to try to take us back uh, 
before the 1964 Civil Rights Movement, before the Civil Rights Act, take us really back to the 1890 Mississippi uh, State Convention, where they rewrote the state constitution to oppose poll taxes and literacy tests. This article here from USA Today, from uh, I think this was in 2021, mock slave auctions, racist lessons, how U.S. history class often traumatizes and dehumanizes, uh, dehumanizes black students. Yeah, this one right here, Republican state lawmakers want to punish schools that teach the 1619 Project, uh, USA Today also. This article here from um, June 2021, dealing with Juneteenth, right? 60% of America, uh, most Americans know little or nothing about Juneteenth poll fines. Americans are very ignorant of history and very ignorant of law, okay? And all this comes together. So when we try to get our issues and concerns addressed, that come from a historical context, many of the people that we're talking to are ignorant, all right? Uh, this article here from the New York Times deals with how 60% of Americans know little or nothing about Juneteenth. I would say a lot of what they know about Juneteenth is false also, all right? So when we look at the Louisiana Purchase, because we start the class out with the Louisiana Purchase, and um, the U.S. gets, of 1803, the U.S. gets um, 828,000 square miles of land for less than three cents an acre from from France, okay? Because France is fighting the Haitian Revolution. Um, there, this this doubled the size of the, the of the U.S. at the time. This is one of the most significant things that uh, Thomas Jefferson is credited with, okay? Because he signed the uh, Louisiana Purchase. What was known at the time as the Louisiana Territory stretched from the Mississippi River in the east to the Rocky Mountains in the west and the Gulf of Mexico in the south to the to the Canadian border in the north. Part, part or all of 15 states were eventually created from the land deal, which is considered one of the most important achievements of Thomas Jefferson's presidency. Okay, history.com has some good information on the Louisiana Purchase. Here's a map of the Louisiana Territory. We see it here in the middle. Of, of the U.S., Louisiana Purchase, 1803, Louisiana Territory. We see the Oregon Country Territory over to my left. We see the territory, the, the Texas and all that, uh, lower, go, going out west, the lower southern portion. That was all controlled by Spain at, at this time in 1803, okay? And then Florida was under Spanish control as well. We know that um, – uh, the U.S. gets control of Spain about 1821. It gets control of Florida from Spain about 1821. All right. And we know that uh, uh, Juan, the, the Spanish come to the U.S. about 1513. Juan Garrido, the Spanish conquistador, comes in, he comes into Florida along with Juan Ponce de Leon. Uh, Juan Garrido, the African, born in West Africa about 1480, comes into Florida in 1513 with uh, the Spanish conquistador Juan Ponce de Leon. So we look at the Louisiana Purchase and see how it's related to the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and if we look at things leading up to the U.S. Civil War taking place, right, the uh, Texas gaining its independence in 1836, Mexican-American War, 1846-1848, Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, 1848, where the U.S. gets uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Utah, and Nevada from uh, Mexico as a result of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And then you look at the uh, uh, the Compromise of 1850, which organizes the land that the U.S. gets from Mexico. 
the Compromise of 1850 consisted of five bills. One of those bills was the Future of the Slave Act of 1850. The Future of the Slave Act is tied to Article 4, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution, and that laid the foundation for the Future of the Slave Act of 1790, signed by uh, uh, President George Washington and the Future of the Slave Act of 1850. Okay, now, uh, the U.S. Civil War in the United States uh, starts April 12, 1861, precipitated by Abraham Lincoln becoming president-elect November 1860, and uh, December uh, 20th, 1860, South Carolina becomes the first state to secede from the Union, all right, because they think Lincoln's going to free the slaves. Now, the Civil War in the United States began in 1861 after decades of simmering tensions between northern and southern states over slavery, uh, states' rights, and westward expansion, over slavery, states' rights, and westward expansion. The election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 called seven southern states to secede and form the CSA, Confederate States of America. Four states soon, uh, four more states soon joined. The war between the states, as the Civil War was known, ended in Confederate surrender in 1865. April 9th, 1865, um, General Robert E. Lee surrenders to uh, General Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. However, the uh, Civil War is going to officially come to an end, and it, it really officially officially comes to an end in August 1866. The reason why is uh, Robert E. Lee's army was the largest Confederate army, but it was not the only Confederate army. And there were smaller Confederate armies that still existed after Robert E. Lee surrendered in terms of the in terms of surrender had to be negotiated with each one of those individual armies as well. So it officially officially comes to an end August 1866. Now the war between um, the, the conflict was the costliest and deadliest war ever fought on American soil. With some 620,000 of 2.4 million soldiers killed, millions more injured, and much of the South left in ruin. Okay, then we look at the Reconstruction era, 1865 to 1877, which is not taught very much in schools. This is a crucial period of history because African Americans were making advances. And then the Reconstruction comes in end with a backroom deal between Republicans and Democrats to allow Rutherford B. Hayes to become president and he'll uh, remove the remaining Union troops out of the South who were enforcing uh, the laws and the new rights African-Americans had, enforcing that to a certain extent. And this allowed the white supremacists in the South to fully take back control of Southern government, state state government, local government, all of this and, and really impose uh, what we call Jim Crow laws. So the Reconstruction era, 1865-1877, for a period of 17, uh, a, for, for a 14-year period, the U.S. government took steps to try and integrate the nation's newly free black population into society, okay? Um, and you're going to have African, you know, you're going to have about 2,000 uh, African-Americans who become elected officials, uh, African-American men who become elected officials during Reconstruction as well. Uh, the majority majority of the state legislature in uh, South Carolina uh, was African-American men during Reconstruction. You have uh, a U.S. senator uh, out of Mississippi in 1870, Hiram Rhodes Rebels. He's, he, he's the only African-American U.S. senator uh, that has come out of uh, Mississippi. Okay, Mississippi has not had an African-American U.S. senator 
since Reconstruction, which is crazy. And Mississippi has one of the highest populations of African-Americans in the country. Okay, so we're going to see these types of advances that we're making during Reconstruction. And we're going to see uh, uh, all this largely get uh, largely get reversed. Okay, after Reconstruction ends and the um, uh, the Jim Crow era. All right, now, and I posted a link here. You can register for this ten week online class. You can join us in class uh, today after this broadcast. And then we have some archived. Uh, you can watch last week's class also because it's archived. All right, now between eighteen sixty three and eighteen seventy seven, the U.S. government undertook. Uh, undertook the task of integrating nearly 4 million formerly enslaved people into society after the Civil War bitterly divided the country over the issue of slavery. A white slave holding South that had built the economy and culture on slave labor was now forced by its defeat in a war that claimed 620,000 lives to change its economic, political, and social relations with African Americans. Okay, now, there's a um, there's a good article. Like I said, we talk about the Mexican-American War. We talk about the uh, which is important to understand because that these are things that lead up to the Civil War taking place. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. As a result of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Republican Party was formed in 1854 by groups of abolitionists. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act was passed. Um, because you had a fierce opposition in Congress and uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act dealt with leaving it up to the people moving out to the Kansas-Nebraska territory to determine whether or not they wanted to have slavery as opposed to it being dictated by the federal government. And this, uh, uh, a lot of abolitionists were furious by this, the, the, the anti-slavery movement. They, they were furious by this because they wanted to reduce the number of territories that had slavery, okay? And this leads to uh, armed conflict in Kansas called Bleeding Kansas, which is about from 1855 to 1859, Bleeding Kansas, okay? Uh, we deal with things like Manifest Destiny, uh, 1845, uh, the Special Field Order number 15, 40 Acres and the Mule, uh, Juneteenth, and really explaining what Juneteenth is, celebrating fact, uh, separating fact from fiction, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. 13th Amendment is based upon the main architect of the 13th Amendment was Senator Lynn Trumbull. It's based upon what's known as the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Contrary to the, 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 the language dealing with um, um, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for a crime where the party shall be du duly convicted. Okay, that comes from the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. That law already applied to white men. They're giving African-Americans the same rights that white men had, especially African-American men. That, 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 that wasn't to re-enslave African-Americans, anything like that. That's giving them the same rights that white people had. All right, that research, the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, that's where that comes from. Noah did not re-enslave African-Americans. That comes from a very poor understanding of history. This is one of the problems with Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th. The premise is false. No, the 13th Amendment did not re-enslave people. That's just nonsense. I interviewed Dr. Daryl Scott, history professor, 
from Howard University on my show for two hours. And he teaches a class at Howard dealing with from slavery to mass incarceration. We went through a dispel of all that nonsense. Uh, we did the 14th Amendment, 1868 as well. We talk about people like Sarah Rector, who was the richest Afro-American girl in uh, in the early 1900s. And she uh, she and her family got land because of the Black Freedmen, Freedmen Indian Treaties of 1866 and the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887. Oil was discovered on her land. She became a millionaire. This is in Oklahoma. And um, her, her family was uh, of uh, Creek Indian slave ancestry. Okay, they had enslaved Creek Indian ancestry because the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, Cherokee, and Seminole Indians all owned African slaves. And we know Tulsa, Oklahoma was founded by Creek Indians um, uh, about 1834 when uh, when the what are known as the five civilized tribes of Native Americans, when they get kicked off of their land in southeastern United States, they all go out west on what's known as the Trail of Tears, and they take their African slaves with them. A third of the people who were on the Trail of Tears were African people. Okay, so this ties into this history in Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Black Wall Street was, the Greenwood District, uh, North Tulsa. Uh, that was founded by Creek Indians around uh, 1834. The the word Tulsa comes from the Creek Indian word Tulsa. I've done a two and a half hour lecture dealing with the history of uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I've, I've done a lot of, in Black Wall Street. So I've done a, a lot of research on that. And a lot of your early African-American landowners, um, a lot of your early African-American landowners um, in Tulsa got land because of those uh, Indian treaties, those Black Freedmen Indian treaties. If you look at the article here very quickly, and then I want to show you this one here from Time Magazine. We're going to get out of here so I can teach this class. Uh, if you look at this article from History.com, which is the official website of the History Channel. Nine entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's Black Wall Street from May 14, 2021 by Alexis Clark. Nine entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's Black Wall Street. Before the Tulsa race massacre, the city's African-American district thrived as a community of business leaders and visionaries. Okay, so if we look at this very quickly here, um they they quote Hannibal B. Johnson, who's one of the top historians, comes to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Black Wall Street. Before the Greenwood District, and that was the business district, the that started at the intersection of Greenwood Arch Pine. This is where it's believed the Gap Band gets their name from Gap GAP Greenwood Arch and Pine because they're from Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, you dropped the bomb on me and burn rubber, Charlie Wilson, things like this, the Gap Band. Okay, so before the Greenwood District was established, African-Americans came to Oklahoma in the mid-19th century as slaves of the five civilized tribes of Native Americans, the term used for the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, and Seminole uh, Native American tribes. They were forced from their lands in the southeast part of the, of the United States, resettling in Oklahoma, then known as Indian Territory. After the Civil War, under the treaties, uh, under the terms of the treaties of 1866, 
these African-Americans were emancipated with some integrating into the tribes. Now, this is this is something Dr. Claude Anderson has been talking about. He's one of my teachers. I know him personally. When I was doing my research on Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, back in about 2014, something like that, I called him and I said that the Black Freedom Indian Treaties tie into the his, history of Tulsa, Oklahoma, because at the time he didn't know that. We talked about this. I was preparing for a lecture and an interview dealing with this, all this, and I was explaining to him the connection between the two. After the Civil War, under the terms of the treaties of 1866, these African-Americans were emancipated with some integrating into the tribes, a relationship that would later provide freedmen with their own land, a relationship that would later provide freedmen with their own land. Now, Hannibal B. Johnson who's the author, his new book is Black, we Black Wall Street 100, an American city grapples with its uh, historical racial trauma. Uh, and he's also the author of this book here that I read for uh, preparation to do my lectures and things like this, dealing with the history of Black Wall Street. This is the first book he wrote on Black Wall Street. This is this was one of the first real history books dealing with Black Wall Street. This came out in like, I think I think it first came out in 1998, and then there was a, a revision that he did. Okay, this book here, copyright 1998, and I think there was uh, I think he did a revision or something like this. This came out in 1998. Uh, Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance and Tulsa's Historic Greenwood District, one of the best books that you read dealing with the history of Black Wall Street by Hannibal B. Johnson. So this is who they're quoting right here. He's one of the top historians when it comes to Tulsa, Oklahoma and Black Wall Street. He said the relative uh, wealth of some black folks in Oklahoma comes in part through their connection to the tribes, Native American tribes and land ownership. The relative wealth of some black folks in Oklahoma comes in part through their connection to the tribes and their land ownership, says Hannibal B. Johnson, historian and author of Black Wall Street 100 and American City Grapples with its Historical Racial Trauma. The Dawes Act, the Dawes Allotment Act of 1877, which redistributes, redistributed 138 million acres of land. The majority of it is supposed to go to Native Americans and Black Indians, things like that. Two thirds went to white people. The, the, this is where you get the $5 Indian from. They, uh, white people learned about this and you had to anglicize your name to have your name added to the Dawes Rolls. This is one of the requirements. So white people, uh, Europeans here paid $5 to have their names added to the Dawes Rolls so they can get this land. The Dawes Act of 1887 authorized the government to divide tribal territories into allotments for individual Native Americans, which included black members, which included black members. This is how Sarah Rector and her family gets the money, gets, gets the land. As word spread that Indian territory was a safer place for African-Americans to settle between 1865 and 1920, more than 50 black townships were founded in Oklahoma. So when the Tulsa race massacre happens June 1st, 1921, and Tulsa is largely destroyed, the North Tulsa is largely destroyed, we rebuilt, 
Black Wall Street. We rebuilt the Greenwood District. We rebuilt North Tulsa with our own dollars and the help of the surrounding black townships. That's 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 the, the most magnificent part of this story that does not get told. Hannibal B. Johnson deals with this in his book, and I talk about this in my lectures. Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's historic Greenwood District, from Riot to Renaissance. He deals with us resurrecting it as well. In about 1926, Dr. W.B. Dubois visited North Tulsa, and he talks about how it was thriving again, and they had businesses back and things like this. This is in 1926. This is five years after the race massacre. Okay, so read this article here. Uh, from history.com, uh, nine entrepreneurs who helped build Tulsa's Black Wall Street, okay? Then you have uh, this one here, also from history.com. Uh, this deals with, because we talk about this in my class, um, this deals with the Louisiana Purchase. The Louisiana Purchase was driven by a slave rebellion, and it deals with the, the connection uh, between the Louisiana Purchase and the Haitian Revolution and how the Louisiana Purchase increased the need for African slave labor here in this country because it doubled the territory of the U.S. at the time, which increased the need in some of those territories. Uh, the U.S. carves out about 15 states out of the land they get from France. And in some of those states, they're going to have slave labor, but the, uh, they're going to have slavery. But the Purchase was also but the purchase was also fueled by a slave revolt in Haiti and tragically it ended up expanding slavery in the United States. Okay. So, uh, lastly, I want to look at, uh, this article here, this shows the connection between the reconstruction era, which is 1865 and 1877 and, and, and a period that we deal with in the class. Uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. But this talks about, this article here from uh, Time Magazine that came out June, uh, January 12, 2022. This deals with how the history of Reconstruction is being incorrectly taught in schools all across the country. A new report finds that 45 states are failing to teach students about the period that shaped race relations after the Civil War. A new report finds that 45 states out of 50, okay, are failing to teach students about the period that shaped race relations after the Civil War. This is by Olivia B. Waxman, January 12, 2022, for Time Magazine, time.com. In the aftermath, of the insurrection a year ago, the January 6, 2021 insurrection is cited by Benedict Donald, the trader in chief. Okay. In the aftermath of the insurrection a year ago at the U.S. Capitol, many leading historians drew parallels between the violence that we saw January 6, 2021 and the Reconstruction era, 1865 to 1877. The period of political revolution, the period of political revolution directly following the American Civil War. Quote, the events, Eric, historian Eric Foner said, the events we saw reminded me very much of the Reconstruction era 
in the overthrow of, overthrow of Reconstruction, which ends in 1877, which was often accompanied or accomplished, I should, I should say, by violent assaults on elected officials, by violent assaults on elected officials. Eric Foner is a Pulitzer Prize winning historian and author of the book Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, 1863 to 1877. He said this in an interview with the New Yorker published a week after the January 6, 2021 insurrection. We saw uh, these domestic terrorists storming the U.S. Capitol building, assaulting uh, over 140 police officers, uh, talking about hanging, hang Mike Pence. Some of them erected gallows outside. They were looking to do harm to uh, members of, uh, of Congress, okay? Violent assaults on elected officials. This is what we saw during a Reconstruction era. All right, now scholars are saying, scholars are studying the aftermath. Scholars say studying the aftermath of the Civil War can help put in context many of the most seminal events in U.S. recent years, from the brutal murder of George Floyd by police in 2020 to the voter suppression laws enacted by black work by black voters, enacted after black voters played a big role in helping Joe Biden and Kamala Harris be elected president and vice president in 2020. But despite the timeliness of the era's but despite the timeliness of the era in today's climate, many students in American schools will not get a full education of Reconstruction until they get to college. Because it's not taught in most schools. 45 out of 50 states are not teaching, uh, are failing to teach students about Reconstruction. Okay, so read this article here from time.com. Time magazine. And then when you, when you look at what took place in 1890 at the Mississippi State Convention, this is why you needed a Voting Rights Act of 1965 to cancel out what uh, uh, Mississippi did in 1890 and um, uh, South Carolina, 1895, Alabama, 1901, Louisiana, 1898 where they impose poll taxes and literacy tests. Where is that article here? Um, it's, from, it's a big article from the Washington Post that deals with this. Let me pull this up here. It's called, it was called the Mississippi Plan, okay? And this became uh, now, Florida was the first state to have poll taxes in 1889. Then Mississippi does in 1890. This article here from the Washington Post gives you an overview of this. The Mississippi plan to keep blacks from voting in 1890. We came here to exclude the Negro. This is from May 1st, 2021. And Solomon Saladin Calhoun was the white county judge who presided over this state convention. And he said, let's tell the truth if it burst the bottom of the universe. He said, we came here to exclude the Negro. Nothing short of this will answer. African-Americans were the majority of the population in Mississippi at the time. And these white supremacists, they wanted to rewrite the state constitutions to impose poll taxes and literacy tests to suppress 
African-American voters to keep us from voting and largely keep us from registering to vote because you had to then pay a, a tax like two dollars or whatever it was to register to vote. OK, and then they're going to the, the African-Americans that we got elected into the state legislatures, things like this, they're going to get knocked out. They, they get voted out of office. We see this across the South. OK, the. Um, so they talk about the uh, OK, Solomon Saladin Calhoun delegates eventually adopted a literacy test and poll tax geared to suppress the black vote in the state with a black majority. The Mississippi plan became the model throughout the South, part of a raft of racially oppressive Jim Crow laws that ended Reconstruction. Reconstruction ended before 1890 when this took place. Reconstruction ended before 1890 when this took place. But we're going to see um, things like this take place after Reconstruction ends, okay, and, and, and to reverse the advancements that we were making. All right, so if you like, how's everybody doing today? Share this broadcast on social media platforms. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like if you like this broadcast. If you want to learn more about this type of information, uh, this is what we deal with in the 10-week uh, online class that I teach on Sundays, 2 p.m., normally 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, I'm going to jump in and teach this class now. We're running later today, and I have to do my radio show at uh, uh, 9 p.m. on Sunday. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. We started in 1803 with the Haitian Revolution and the Louisiana Purchase. We deal with history chronologically um, up through 1968. Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, Great Migration, World War One, World War II, um, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement, okay? And some of the slides I showed you are from the presentation. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, video clips, all of that. Uh, you can use this information with your children. I would say the information is PG-13. It's not overly graphic. I don't do a lot of cursing, et cetera. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. We just had this new, this session here of the class just started up uh, really last week. Um, so we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. So you can go back and watch it anytime. And a year from now, two years from now, you can go back and watch the entire class, okay? So we do this normally Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, the uh, on Saturdays, uh, the class that I teach is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. So we had a great class on Saturday. This, this course just started up also. That one's on sale, $80 regularly, $130 is the same format. Uh, PowerPoint presentation, book references, articles, video clips, what we do with thousands of years of history. If you've taken any of my online classes in the past, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com. You'll get a 50% discount. Okay, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com if you've taken any of my online classes in the past. And then also we have a, um, a course bundle pack where you get... Um, uh, the classes that I teach you, you get those in a bundle for $120. It's a $285 value. So you get a discount on that. Okay. So we have all that at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, um, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Okay. So you can check that out there. You can register for the class. We have the information here in the uh, thread of the, of the broadcast from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Also, be, and if you like this type of information as well, you want to support us, dollar sign, the AHN Show through Cash App, 
dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show that helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills, broadcast our radio show also, the African History Network show. And um, on 9, 10 a.m., the Superstation WFDF on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. We have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, we have the information here for Cash App and PayPal. This is our official Cash App account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. When you go to it, it says Michael and shows my picture there. These other ones here are fake African History Network Cash App accounts. I'm trying to get shut down. Cash App is already, um, I contacted Cash App. They've already opened up an investigation because there are these and a couple of other ones out there that are uh, stealing money from us and uh, they're scamming, pretending to be the African History Network. We have our link here and then the yellow PayPal donate button uh, also. And then information here about my radio show. I've been doing radio 12 years, six years on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF on Sundays, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We broadcast on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and my YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P, when we're live. So uh, follow us there. Turn on live notifications. So, you know, when we go live, you can also listen on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF here in Detroit or download the iHeartRadio app and search for the African History Network show. Well, search for 9, 10 a.m. You can listen live or search for the African History Network show because they have about 300 of my audio podcasts there. Okay, look, we have to get out of here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Be sure to register for this class and the other ones. We'll see you in class and see you on the radio. Right now, it's correct wrong behavior. Behavior is not over till we win. We're kind of forever, and we'll talk to you next time. Peace. Right now, it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever, and we'll talk to you next time.